0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's uh, episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim, and we are here. Evan loves that title, apparently. Um, Yeah, nerd doctor. We are gearing up for another great episode with some fantastic storytelling that's going to take place. There are going to be some really powerful lessons that uh, the listeners are going to be walking with after hearing this episode. One, we're going to learn about why it's okay to deviate from... From quote unquote the norm. We're also going to learn why having a mindset that is shifted to recognize rest as a prerequisite for success, not a reward, is an important mindset shift that people need to adopt and pretty early in their careers. We're also going to learn why that there is an opportunity to advance in every challenge or obstacle that you encounter. Pretty heavy learnings in each of those areas. And to guide us through this conversation, we have our featured guest, Evan Patterson. So welcome to the show, Evan.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That's quite the intro. I hope I live up to the hype.
0: (laughs) Oh, you're definitely going to live up to the hype. We're connected on LinkedIn and I see the stuff that you post about and your authenticity alone is going to advance this conversation. So I'm super pumped to have you on and thank you for being open to sharing your story because I think it's an important perspective that needs to be out in there in the world of work for a number of reasons. And we'll get to all of those things in a little bit. So before we dive deep into the conversation, why don't you give us a, a high level view of where you're at now, how you got there, what you're responsible for. Just walk us through that, as if you're presenting at a conference.
1: I wish I knew what I did for a living. It changes every day, every hour, honestly. You no, know, my main role, my primary role is the head of content and community at trender.ai, world's first social media search engine and recommendation engine. And what my day is spent doing is both content, both the doing and the strategy and uh, the community part of things. And honestly, as of lately, it's mostly dark social. It's a lot of marketing ops stuff because somebody has to do it. Honestly, marketing ops is my least favorite part, but that's a necessity at a seat stage. Somebody has to do it. But that's the gist of what I do at Trender. Outside of that, I work as a brand ambassador and an influencer marketer for a few different B2B brands, and especially SaaS or SaaS adjacent. I'm a coach and a career consultant for a lot of different corporate companies and individuals, as well as providing the services for companies that do career coaching as their business model. And I'm a freelance contact. So that's the, the long and the short of my resume. How I got there is a book within itself. So I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole.
0: We're going to get to that. But i I want to dig into a couple of areas really quick that you mentioned. One, you reference trender. And two, you reference dark social. So I'm not sure how tuned in our listeners are to both of those things. So tell us a little bit about Trender, and then tell us about what dark social is and how you're leveraging that or impacting that as a community lead or community manager.
1: Of course. So Trendr.ai is comparable to like how you would look at Google, right? It's a search engine of the Internet. Wikipedia, same thing for uh, knowledge and YouTube for video. But Trender is that same logic, but for all things, social media. So using keywords, hashtags, and spoon feed you exactly the type of content that you're looking for and make recommendations to get you that kind of content across all of your social media channels that are connected to the platform. This allows you for you to do social listening. It allows you to do social selling. It allows you to source business partners, stay up on market trends, know what people are saying about you or your world, find influencers, user-generated content, so on and so forth. So it's not just for marketers. So that's what trend currently we work with Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. And we have LinkedIn around the corner and YouTube, Pinterest, Reddit, and more
0: on the way. So yeah, that's what Trender is. I, I just want to make sure I'm I'm being clear when I ask this question. So I'm I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm not native to all the different platforms, although I am on quite a few. Mm-hmm. But if I'm looking at the business application of what Trender does, if a company is interested in getting a deeper understanding about the voice of the customer or the voice of the community, that's where Trender fits, right? It gives you an intel into what matters to your customer base or your potential customer base. Am yep.
1: I on the right track? Yeah, Yo, you're, right. you're definitely on the right track. That is, the, that is one primary use case. That is one of the leading reasons um, that people would use Trender. What they do with that information will vary obviously based on their roles, of course, but that is the main reason most companies would be using Trender.
0: That's a phenomenal linkage because one of the things that I talk about quite a lot and you do too, Evan, is that we are hyper-focused on buyer-centric social selling and putting focus of our outreach efforts and our communication on what matters to the buyer so this is another element that gives you the insights on what matters so rather than what most organizations are doing where they're guessing at these personas that they made out of somewhere. Oh, this is what matters to this person. You actually have tooling that will actually tell you, hey, what does your customer care about? The other thing that I wanted to probe a little bit on is the whole concept of dark social. Educate us a little bit, at least at a high level, on what is dark social and what are the implications? Dark social is not as
1: dark sounding As it sounds, um, it's not like the dark web. The dark social is those parts of social media or social selling that are not trackable through technology, whether forever or currently. So that includes the person who saw your ad but didn't click on it. So that's tracked. But what about the fact that somebody talked about you in a post without tagging your company? That's where Trender makes it less dark. But then there's also the consideration of they went to a networking event where someone said something in a Zoom call about you, or you were rubbing the shoulders with somebody that you bumped into by accident at karaoke night at your local pub. All these untrackable parts of advertising and of the funnel. You know, someone's seen a TV ad, someone hearing you get brought up somewhere in a, not in an event, but just like overhearing them in a restaurant or in a park or at a networking event. Those are all parts of dark social or dark selling or dark funnel. It's just the parts that you can't track. However, those are the parts that are the most important to filling the funnel of a company. And people go, it's not scalable because they can't track it. It is scalable. And if being able to track it isn't what makes it scalable, and this isn't a new concept, brand evangelism has been around since the 1920s when it comes to sales processes in the B2B world. It's just moving to a digital, if not hybrids place nowadays. So this isn't new. A lot of my work is not tracked. It's not capable of being tracked. But my boss, Betsy, knows the minute Evan stops doing these things, the engagement rate and the followers and everything on social goes down. I can't tell someone exactly which actions had the highest ROI. And for the foreseeable future, I will never be able to. But I know that if I don't do them, I'm not going to get the impact that I'm getting.
0: It's really pretty interesting when you look at the B2B sales cycle, because there's a prevailing wisdom is that when somebody actually submits a demo request, that's when the buyer journey actually starts. And where <laughs> not Trend- <at> all. <laughs> And when you talk about things that Trender does, the voice of the customer, dark social, all of that sort of stuff, by the time they hit your demo request on any product or send an inquiry. They're probably seventy percent, eighty percent of the way to making a decision, and now it's just due diligence to see who is going to be the winner. Because yeah. the vast majority of what happens in the background, without visibility and without attribution, is that they're looking on socials, they're talking to their friends, they're talking to actual existing customers that use your product. They're getting on their Slack channel or on their Teams channel, "Hey, yep. have you ever worked with this tool or that tool?" And none of that is attributed There's not two. So. There's all of that stuff going on. So it's a, it's really interesting on how that's going to develop. Thanks for educating us on that. There's some takeaways (laughs) right there. And then we're not even in the meat of the conversation. (laughs) Let's dive right into the meat of the conversation. Now you've been consistently involved in a number of different communities and from a business perspective. And I want to tie your community involved to your origin story. There, there's got to be some sort of linkage from way back in the day to. The work that you do and how that all fits together. So why don't you give us a little bit of your origin story and and tell us about what were the big impacts in your life that kind of made you who you are and led you to where you are right now?
1: When it comes to looking at communities, I see two versions of myself. I see myself as like the community builder or marketer, but then I also see myself as the person who's a member of these communities. And when I look back in hindsight, it's really weird when I I didn't even know that I could say that I've been doing community marketing actively with money coming through the door, You knew it was $5 a year. I've been doing community marketing since I was 13 or 14 years old. I didn't know until recently that I've been doing it even that long because when I was younger, when I was like in my like seven, eight, nine years old, I didn't have a lot of friends in real life. Most of my friends were online. I grew up right when the internet really started to take off. I was born in 1994. So right around the turn of the, the millennium is when I was hopping on the internet and playing these like massively like huge MMORPGs basically. I was playing online games and my, my grandparents were really confused. What is your kid doing in the other room? Like He's talking to his friend. Like He's got an Australian accent. I'm like, yeah, his friend lives in Sydney, but never met him in person. But I remember playing these games and they were made for kids, of course, at the time. But so I started creating groups and clubs within these games because I wanted to meet more people like me. So I remember being like 10 years old, hosting virtual viewing parties and where we would all be on Skype watching our favorite Disney Channel original movie at the same time. I remember doing that at that age and then when i got older i started i kept doing this with different games as my interests and passions evolved and the companies that owned these games or published these games that i was doing events in or alongside of sourcing people out of their games community they started paying me even at 13, 14 years old, to put ads for the game back on the site. So when people go from their site to my site, they go back to the game site and back and forth to create this echo chamber. They were paying to advertise the game's updates and patches and expansion packs on my site made for their game. And I just did this for fun. And the, every single dollar at that age went to junk food, video games, or right back into the site, right? When you're 14. So I did it because it came from a place of passion and interest, but it also came from a place of loneliness growing up as a queer kid. And even before I knew I was gay, I still knew something was off about me, I would say back then. So making friends was very difficult to up in a very small homophobic town. And I had friends, but I, very few. And they had their own set of problems too. It was a little bit of island of misfit toys there. But this was the way for me to fill in that gap. And as I've grown and I live in a much more liberal, um, progressive LGBTQ friendly part of the country, I've just taken these hobbies and turned them into skills and then skills turned into career.
0: I think one of the things that's important to call out is the value of community in in work, but also in life. Like we've had tons of guests that talk about this all the time where they went through the these formative experiences not feeling like they fit in a particular area, and what they did is did a different version of what you're talking about and fi- found their own group of people that that got who they were and, and built a community around that i I think one of the things that i'm I'm curious about is that you talked about that small town upbringing and all the things that come with it. How did building that community that global community that you did as you were growing up how did that help soften? The experiences that you had growing up in a small town, homophobic yeah. environment—like how did how did that help you remain on a path that was not self-destructive?
1: I think the the biggest thing was escapism. I often make jokes when I come to talking to heterosexual cisgender people because they will like, why does the LGBT community love like Disney and why they love musicals and why they love drag queens and why they love these like artists like Lady Gaga, these like other worlds basically of their fan bases. And it all comes down to escapism as a coping mechanism when you're dealing with A bunch of BS, basically. So for me, not knowing that I was doing that at that age, but realizing in hindsight, that's a basic human biological need. And once you, it's natural for when a human sees the opportunity to solve that problem, to do it, whether they realize they're doing it for that reason or not. It it's very common for a human being and our DNA is, is a species of animal to seek this and create it once we have a door open. So I that was, I think, the primary driver. And it was in a way that I found fun. Now, granted, I said I built websites, and like that wasn't the primary driver. I'm not, actually not really good at building websites. I actually don't find the process of building a website very entertaining. I found the process of running the community and the website was the tool to do that with at the time. This is back when like forums were like the web- Way. And we used to use Teamspeak or Ventrilo. If anybody from the early two thousands remember those, so those, those were more like vehicles for me to do these things with. Whether it was in game events or events that were attended by people from these games, or collaborating with the publishers and the community makers that worked for these publishers, that was all first and foremost just a hobby and escapism that allowed me to have a bad day at school where the teacher's insert or here was thrown at me. You know, it gave me a place to go to to. Get distracted to be reminded that there were places in the world that that valued who I was. It gave me an opportunity to be myself without fear, and it also opened up my eyes to a lot more possibilities. I think it's one of the reasons why i'm also centric on d e i because like I grew up meeting and learning from people literally all over the world. I I could probably, I'm really good at geography as a result. Like I could freehand draw the world. Honestly, it helped me feel like myself. It helped me have a safe space. And when you have that, it carries back over into all the other stuff. It's this ping pong effect. So obviously by the time I got into my 20s, I had shoved a lot of life experience into 20 years without even trying, which is probably why I'm so cocky um, at my age right now.
0: But that that's the long and the short of it. it. You mentioned something in that conversation that I just underlined and put a box around it. And that's, it gave you a vision of what's possible. And when we've had guests It gave you a sense of possibilities when every single one of our guests talk about there was either somebody or a group of people that gave them a vision for what life could be like. And that was the impetus that set them moving towards the direction that they eventually followed. That's an important call out. And and I don't want to leave this topic without getting some of your learnings about that phase of your life that we can pass on to other folks. Now, obviously, today is different than the mid-90s, just different from the mid-80s. But even then, you still have people that are going through the same or similar journeys trying to figure it out on their own. So what advice would you have for those folks who might identify with you as being the outsider or being potentially, you didn't know at the time, but you thought you were a little, and I'll use your words, off, and I'm using that in air quotes. What advice would you have for people that are experiencing that in in that point in their life now, like, how would you advise them on how they can navigate that?
1: Yeah, regardless of what people around you are saying, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You're not sick. You're not injured. You're n- you weren't born incorrectly, regardless of what any fictional book says. And if somebody's offended by that statement, tell me so I can tell you again. Well, you are who you are. And also, newsflash, that can change. Also, not by not even by will, but everything is fluid. Gender is fluid as a perfect example of that. My sexual orientation is I've changed the identity of my sexual orientation three different times in my life. Not by choice, just by ebbing and flowing and learning new things about myself. But it became possible because I would remind myself that there's nothing wrong with that. And it's perfectly healthy and perfectly normal. Just because it's not talked about doesn't mean it's not healthy and normal. With that being said, proactively seek out people that that make you feel accepted whether they are like you or not like you but they're educated on you really focus on who you associate yourself with as much as you can as much as humanly possible and i understand that that's easier said than done in a lot of situations with abusive parents the list goes on and on but the any opportunity you can take to control your environment to take it it is worth it i am a massive advocate against the phrases impact versus intent and perception is reality, because sometimes it quite literally is everyone else's fault that you're in this scenario that you're in. It is up to you to deal with it. But at the same time, when you are of any sort of marginalized identity, whether you're a person of color or you're queer so on and so forth, you get put in a lot of situations where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're rocked in a hard place, so you can't win. And that's when it is everyone else's fault. And I know it's natural to want to fight fire with fire in that place. I'm going to tell you what my mom told me. Don't play to win. Play to erase who and what happened in the first place. And that's by being successful and happy and making them left in the dust. You don't do that by uh, being mean. You do that by proving them wrong.
0: It's an old saying. Success is the best revenge, and I don't necessarily look at it from the perspective of revenge because that's really the mindset that I want to operate in. I love
1: that mindset. makes me (laughs) wake up in the morning. I love it.
0: I'm petty and proud. I'm sorry. Let's talk about that a little bit. We're going to go through a little bit of a thought exercise. So the reason why I try to like stay away from the vengeance-oriented thinking is that you run the risk of becoming bitter as a person because then you have – and this is just my – yeah, you know, everyone's different here. So I always end up saying, okay, how is this going to impact this mindset going to impact me as a generally positive person if I'm operating in the world with the intent of vengeance? So. That's just my thought process. I, I think everybody's got to yeah. their own way through through navigating it. So there there is no right or wrong answer. For me, vengeance
1: is healthy when it's married with betterment. I am a firm believer that has nothing to do with people's identity, it has nothing to do with people's upbringing. I do think that there are some people that are default lesser than others based on their choices. So therefore, vengeance through betterment is something that I find thrilling. I I love watching somebody trip and fall when they uh, asked for it, especially when we're talking about somebody that, well, normally your behavior causes tens of thousands of people to be miserable or kill themselves, quite literally. I'm not sorry that you had a rough week as a result of me doing well. You know what? In
0: in that context, that's an important call out. Okay. I, I, I can see where that makes sense. I want to tie back to something else that you mentioned, and that was how you've been on this personal journey in understanding who you are, what you care about, all this sort of stuff. And all of that is okay. And you actually said, hey, the advice that I would give anybody else going through this, you might be thinking or feeling this way at this point in time, but expect that to change. And I think that's absolutely dead on because we've been in this sort of World where some journeys are okay and other journeys are unacceptable. And that seems really weird to me because who are you to decide what journey is valid? And that's what I took out of that conversation or that point that you were making that, hey, you've had this sort of fluid uh, sense of identity over the years, and that's perfectly fine too. Those were your formative experiences. You needed to build a sense of belonging, you needed to get a view for what's possible out there, and you did that. And Obviously, high school and college had its own learning. So when you were going through that experience, and I'm deliberately mentioning college. I know. <laughs> um, so tell us about how you navigated that arc of your life and what you took away from it.
1: Yeah. So right around the time i entered ninth grade, my body started to attack me. Basically, I was extremely stressed out and I had a lot of medical disorders that are often created by stress, if not made worse by stress, if they weren't created by it. So I have fibromyalgia, unrelated to PTSD and other things that I have. But you know, fibromyalgia is incredibly worsened by stress, especially emotional, mental stress. It made me so sick all the time. And then I end up getting like a bunch of other physical digestive health issues, which if anybody knows anything about digestive health, stress is a massive impact on that. So I was missing from like sixth grade till 10th grade, I was missing about 80 to 90 days um, per school year even though a school year where I'm from is roughly 180 to 190 days. So I was missing about half the year. I was still... Rel- getting relatively good grades my gpa was always between 3.2 and 3.5 because i am awful at things like physics and chemistry but i'm great at like english and social studies so i was not a stupid kid i i, I know that i obviously was not a straight a's kid because i was raised by parents that told me listen we know you hate chemistry we know you you were not put on this earth to be a chemist we can tell just pass the class please just please just pass the class that's it we don't care if you get d minus just pass so with that mindset, no matter how much it worked, my parents were getting to deal with CPS because apparently your kid doing great in school isn't enough to make up for the fact that he's sick all the time and not in school because apparently attendance equals effort and productivity, which is not true at all. My parents knew that, but they had to deal with it. Then on top of that, I was getting bullied and harassed by students and teachers and faculty and other kids' parents regularly. I had, I overheard say that they would draw straws to see me who had me in the class. Because they didn't want me in their class. And when I confronted them, they told me that that was true. And that if I didn't want that problem, I just shouldn't be gay. And that's one of hundreds of examples. Thanksgiving break of 11th grade, my parents and I, were, I was just so sick of it. They were sick of it. They were like, you're just not going to go back to school after this. And we're going to find another option for you. I went to an online high school. I went to an online private school called K-12 International Academy. I've heard of Uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. They own a bunch of schools. Yeah. Yeah, K-12.com, as it sounds, shout out to them. They saved my life, I think. I learned more in those two years than I ever did in any sort of education system. And I, I, I was fortunate and privileged enough to have parents that could afford to send me to the private school version, which just... At the time, I don't know what their business model is now, but at the time, that meant that I was going to get more hands-on instruction when I needed it. Because obviously switching from a brick-and-mortar public school to this setup so late in life was jarring. Yeah. So to give me that freedom helped. And at the same time, I started to do more on the social media and the virtual reality and the video games that I was on because I had more free time now. Because obviously, I didn't have to spend an hour in, uh, in one subject that would normally take me 15 minutes, about 40 kids in my classroom. So I was able to get my work done in less time. And so that only spoon fed more of that escapism, more of that community finding. It's how I learned that I wanted to live in Chicago was because of video games that had Chicago in them. When I got out of high school and being raised by parents that were leaning to what you're good at and figure out how to make a plane for yourself, plus all these other factors I just go into college read the syllabus of a marketing uh, class. And then I, being the uh, curious person that I am, would go online, look at the jobs that they said that this course will help you get prepared for. And notice that none of the words in the course's syllabus were mentioned in the job descriptions. So it was not for me. I was like, this is a waste of time. And I, I did try to make it work. Cause I thought that was the only way. And cause that's what my generation was spoon fed was you have to go to college. And I was just miserable. I was like I learned nothing. I realized I only enjoyed the conversations with the teachers after the lectures, not during the lectures. And so I just I I caved in. I gave up, and I think that giving up probably is one of the best things I ever did and decided to just lean into networking and lean into traveling and lean into resting and leaning into doing whatever the hell I wanted to do. And to help me discover where my place was in the world and or how to create my place in the world. And it's that mindset that helped me be more productive and be able to have as much experience as I have at only 27 years old.
0: There are three big things that I want to call out in that conversation. And thanks for sharing that entire arc, as well as your thought process behind it. So one, there are so many things that are in work and in life that are just tied to time and seat criteria like yeah. just because you occupy a space for a period of time that automatically gives you some sort of advantage and call that out pretty quickly from your high school experience as well as your college experience to the extent that you did that i think it's important for people to take away from the conversation is that it's not you know how much you occupy space that matters it's what impact do you you cause while you're in that space that's what matters so that's an important call out The interesting point about your college observations, you went into marketing and you sat through whatever you sat through and you looked at the syllabus and you tied it to what are employers actually looking for? And the interesting thing about that parallel is that when I think about the best marketers, and I'm a sales guy, so I'm not a marketer, I'm I'm marketing adjacent. But when I look at the best marketers that are in my network, none of them really spent a ton of time having formal marketing training. They actually picked out whatever they picked out and just built it on their own. So if I look in my network on the folks that have the biggest communities and you're one of them and who are in the marketing space, They actually bootstrap this on their own in like real time versus sitting in the classroom and figuring that that out. And the lesson here is that you can certainly apply it to marketing. You can certainly apply it to sales, even technology from an engineering perspective. There is a shift now where certifications and, and experiential work actually has equal, if not more weight, than a computer science degree. So I'm glad to see that trend happening. That's how we hire a
1: trender. Yeah, we'd rather hire for passion and ingenuity.
0: I talk about it from the perspective of sales where I'm hiring for attitude and aptitude versus a particular set of skills or the right schooling or whatever that might be. But I think out of those things that you just mentioned and those are important, the thing that stood out in that answer that you gave me was your parents' advice I want you to be laser focused on what you're good at. Or, and yeah. I'm paraphrasing, find what you're good at and do that, yeah. or figure out how you can leverage that to advance your agenda. And I think that's a critical lesson too when uh, when you're trying to navigate through life and figure out what do I want to do, who do I want to be. And and that's hats off to your parents for instilling that in you because I think that's a that's a phenomenal lesson. I got
1: really lucky. I got to watch two people that on paper shouldn't be good at what they do. Uh, be good at what they do. My dad has a degree in electrical engineering and he has spent, he's he's, just, he's about to retire. He's partially retired right now. He's about to go full retirement and he is, his career has been Almost exclusively working on project management for building tanks and missiles and military vehicles. And the keywords are the project management. His job would be to go to these other countries that were allies of the United States. And they go, We want tanks that can fly and go underwater and do all these things. And it'd be my dad's job to tell them that in the state of the world's techn- technological abilities, we can't do that. So my dad was like, it was more project management, sales, and software engineering, and hardware engineering, and architectural engineering, and mechanical engineering. And he goes, Evan, I very rarely touched anything from my electrical engineering, and like all it did was teach me how to think in that world. And then my mother, college dropout, and we're talking art, college dropout, grew up in a dirt poor family, and she was one of the few women to work for the Department of Defense, and. TLDR, she kept the country blowing up from a desk. That was her job was to track suspicious activity of people way before there was like AI for this back in like the 80s. So that was my mom's job. She traveled the world and she did all these different things with no education, being the only woman in a team of over 100 men. She was in her early to mid-20s. She was about my age. And every single person she worked with was like colonels and sergeants in their 40s and up, cisgender, straight white men. I, and my my father had a really rough childhood with how he was raised. My mother had some rough childhood, too, as well as her first husband was extremely physically abusive and assaulted her before my father. So, thankfully, she never had kids of him. And so there's no ties to him. But so I got to watch two people that were equally left brained and right brained. They were, they're extremely analytical, extremely detail oriented, but also hyper creative, very willing to get their feet dirty. I, I pride myself on being able to look at things, big picture and little picture, the exact same time simultaneous. If you know anything about Meyer Briggs personality types, ENTP is who I am. It's, I'm really good at connecting the dots between things that are, seemingly unrelated to people it's why i have a lot of bizarre and unusual analogies when i speak my parents are very similar they're just introverted versions of that so i'm the loud one uh, so i'm really proud of my upbringing in that regard a lot
0: that's an interesting set or actually a really solid set of of role models that you have and i think i think the the key takeaway from all of that is your, and this has been a theme up until this part of the conversation is that you've either deliberately or by accident define your own journey versus having other people tell you you can't do that. And I think your parents did the same thing too, yeah. where they never let other people's opinions of what what could be possible impact their own vision for themselves. And I think that that's a critical takeaway is really what it boils down yeah. to. When in doubt, be bold and audacious as you go. Stu Hennick- who we've had on on the show, he talks about, hey, be bold and uh, audacious when it comes to executing whatever it is that you want to execute. And I think your lesson is great in that respect. So I want to fast forward into your experience in the world of work. And the intent here is you're out front with who you are and what you're about and what you care about. And, and I think when in doubt, be authentic. That's really what I coach my teams on is be who you are. Don't sell like me. Sell, but when you look at your experience navigating through the world of work and specifically in the areas, how you would advise team leaders to manage at the individual level, but specifically manage somebody like you. What are the things that we need to be aware of? <laughs> I'm laughing because yeah. I've had this conversation with yeah. team leaders. Everybody knows from a leadership perspective, your leadership effort should be tailored to each person at your yeah. on your team based on what they need. But obviously, like we don't come around Evan Patterson's every single day or all the time. So how do you how is a leader supposed to position themselves to effectively lead you or a person like you? And I know that we're not talking in terms of monoliths, but what are some things that I need to do?
1: I'm going to make you very uncomfortable, very vaguely. And if you don't have your problem with that, this is not going to work. And this is how I've answered this question, by the way, in job interviews. Like I've been asked, like, what makes a good manager for you you're, and working with you? Shout out to Joe Caprio and Danny Esner for being two of the first managers to ever ask me that in a job interview. But I, I poke and prod is what some people would say that I do. But I'm just an insanely curious person. And, and where I've noticed is... People will get angry or defensive with me when they don't understand the value of my questions. I'm not stupid. I always have a reason for everything I'm saying. It may not be abundantly clear to you, but the reason why I haven't told you is more than likely, A, I already know you don't need to know, or B, this question I'm asking is part of me articulating that value to you. So just just bear with me I promise it will get there and make sense. I have been told on many times in my career that like I have a tendency to you know rip things into shreds and like look at everything separately individually and then put it back together better than it was before. I'm very scrappy. The problem is if you're somebody that loves a good formula and a blueprint and like running with a program that's been created, I'm a builder, not a maintainer so you have to let me make things messier before you can let me make it better and and i 11 times out of 10 it will work in everyone's favor the only time it's ever not worked is when people got in the way so just stay out of my way now however that doesn't mean i don't want to work as a team or collaborate i love hearing from other people's perspective i would not be as good at what i do at 27 years old if i did not keep an open mind and hear other people's perspectives on things so Keep the door open because I will come to you, especially if I respect you. I will come to you as regularly asking for your advice and feedback and thoughts on things. Even if I disagree, I want to know as many perspectives as possible. That's the ENTP in me kicking in. The second thing after that is keep an eye on me from afar. Especially if you're my senior and you've been doing this longer than me, or you have wisdom that I don't have solely because they haven't been on the planet long enough. Like I, I, I have no problem with someone grabbing by the shirt if I'm at the head towards the cliff. My problem is when someone tries to avoid me running towards the cliff. At first, let me run towards the cliff. There's probably a reason I'm running towards the cliff, and I'm probably gonna turn right before it's too late. Don't worry, like I've got this. But if you can tell I've passed the point of no return, feel free to jump in. I'll appreciate that. I, I am aware that once again. 27 means a lot of great things, but it also means a lot of bad things. I am still at the end of the day, your average 20-something year old who thinks all over the place all the time. So that I always tell managers, just be aware every day is going to be different with me. Every day is going to make you a little bit uncomfortable with me. And you're going to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And every single day, you're going to not understand at least half of what I'm doing. And then a week later, you can go, I completely see why now.
0: I'm sitting there listening to you describe yourself and your advice. And and 90% of it, I'm like, man, he's describing how I am when I'm doing stuff. So I'm not sure if we'd get along great or if we would drive each other crazy. I have
1: so- a lot of friends that are exactly like me in my personal life outside of all this stuff. And they, those are the people that I bicker with the most, but those are also the people that I'm the closest with because yeah. I am a very no bullshit person. I'm like, listen, if, if somebody asks me, does this make me look good? I'm not going to lie to you. I'll tell you if you look ugly in it. I'm sorry,
0: like a bad friend would tell you you look great in it. I'm pretty direct. I'm not sure if I'm that direct. But (laughs) with that being said, I think uh, I can definitely relate to that description of, hey, I'm somebody that needs to break stuff apart to see." what the inner clockwork is and then be able to rebuild it and better i am definitely not a maintainer that is not my yeah i get bored in that space i could never
1: work for a large company like linkedin i love you all but you've offered me three jobs and i said no to all three why i
0: can't work at a large company
1: even if you pay me four times more
0: can't. I I run through a lot of those same struggles. So small startup or or accelerating growth is really where my wheelhouse is because I get so many different areas that I can impact. And I get the, the feeling that you're in that same boat.
1: As of recently, I think I've learned that about myself
0: recently. So one of the things that I'm really curious about, and you mentioned this early on in the show, is that You believe that rest is a prerequisite for success. And and I think that's more of a a fact than it is a a belief. Tell me a little bit about how that works in your life and how you've seen that become a reality in terms of driving success. It
1: goes back to, you know, when I was in school, right? I was missing about half the school year, but I was still getting the work done. And I remembered being incredibly confused as to, and maybe I was a little bitter back then because he used to go, is everyone else around me just stupid? Like, why am I able to get this done in half the time? And they were never being very confused and my mom was telling me like i and i remember being in the pediatrician's office with my doctor who was my the little the day i was born and and seeing her every 2 months because i was so sick and then my mother being in the room with me and my doctor and her both telling me that i find how i learn and how i work and i unapologetically just stick to that and for me in that answer was taking time to do things that had nothing to do with what I needed to get done, for lack of a better word. I was like, I can't do math homework for more than 30 minutes at a time. I, I can't. My brain goes fried. But at the same time, then why is it when I write an English paper, if I have to write a thousand word paper, I can only write it in one sitting. I can't do this whole 15 drafts thing. I just can't do it. So what did I do? I wrote the English paper the way I wanted to do it. And I would pass in the same exact draft every single time in school. and The teacher would get angry, but I would still get an A because because at the end of the day, I'm only graded on the final copy, which is the same way it works in real life, by the way. <laughs> and then when it came to math, every 15, 20 minutes, I would take a break, go play video games for, a half hour, for twice as long as I did the math homework. And then I would rinse, wash, repeat until the math homework was done. So I just leaned into that and I realized, oh, there's a lot of rest and understanding what drives me. I love to write. So as long as the English paper was about something that I liked. I could do it that way. Math never liked it. So therefore, I had to find a way to deal with it. That was the first glimpse, the se- first glimpse at that. Second thing was during online, realizing like I'm really good at languages. So French class, I could do a week's worth of work in one hour. So I would um, do my week's worth of French work on Mondays and get that out of the way. I would get my English done out of the way. Everything that came natural and easy to me, I got that out of the way. So I had so much extra time to dedicate to the things that didn't come naturally to me and more time to plan my rest periods with okay, Evan, you've got about 10 or so hours worth of homework left for this week. It's Tuesday. So feel free to take Wednesday off. Friday, get five of it done. No, Thursday, get five of it done Um, that way because you have a party Friday night to go to with your friend Ashlyn. That was how I would think back then because I needed to make sure I had time to do things that I wanted to do. I noticed whenever I just did things at a schedule that was handed to me versus created by me, I wasn't able to get things done on time or as well as they could have been, or I was sick as a result because of the stress. That obviously set me up for some stress when I moved into the working world and had to pay my own bills because obviously companies don't like it when
0: somebody wants that much control over their day. But that's why I work where I work. There are some pretty significant lessons in there. And I don't know if you were deliberate about this. I think you were, but you have to like self-check where your energy levels are across any number of tasks. So yes. you have to adjust your work rate depending on energy level and work the way that you work. And and this is the great thing about, there are very few great things about millions of people that are dropping dead because of the pandemic. But one great thing that came out of it is the fact that it shifted the employer-employee relationship to be more of an equal footing. And it created this era where people can work how you want to work And the focus is on the out, not the time in seat stuff. So when we talk about deviating from the norm or deviating from the the expected, this whole work habit or work behavior in terms of how the work is delivered is a great thing, too, because I think it allows for people to be much more flexible and maintain their own energy levels in service of the deliverable. That's an important call out, whether you meant it. Directly or indirectly? (laughs) No, that's what I meant directly. Evan, I really appreciate the uh, the time that you've spent with us. I want to thank you for sharing your story. I think there's a ton of important lessons. But before we wrap up, when you look at your experience from end to end up until this point, what are the key things that you want humans listening to the show? What do you want them to take away and understand in terms of their journey and and their experience? You don't need to justify your reasonings behind
1: why you do what you do when it comes to all the things that I've mentioned here, learning who you are, learning why you work the way that you work. And when I say work, I don't even mean the workplace. Like, why do you function the way that you function? And then leaning into carving your own path and finding ways to uh, like, oh, this sucked. What can I do with it though? So as long you don't need to justify any of that to anybody. Now, granted, it's helpful when you can explain it to people. It's a great way for branding yourself and networking and helping people, but you don't need to justify it. I tell them. My ex-roommate and my best friend all the time, he's deaf and he gets very self-conscious when he has to ask people to repeat them, especially in crowded bars. And I'm like, don't get self-conscious. And he goes, why? It's so hard. I'm like, wouldn't you want to know if someone's going to be an asshole to you because you're deaf from the first five seconds versus five weeks into knowing them? So leaning into it without... Any sort of having to justify why or how or whatever, you'll find the people that matter. You'll get more no's, but the yeses will be the best possible yeses you'll ever get.
0: That is great advice, Evan. Before we sign off, where can people find you?
1: I am all over the place. You can uh, find all of my social handles through Linktree. So linktr.ee forward slash Evan Patterson. I'm also Evan Patterson on LinkedIn. I'm Evan M. as in Michael, so Evan M. Patterson on Twitter. I'm Evan Patterson Insta, I-N-S-T-A on Instagram. And I'm Evangelist Patterson, the way it sounds and spells, on TikTok. And of course, make sure you follow
0: trender.ai. Thanks for sharing that. I am on a lot of those same channels, although my bandwidth to be on all of the ones that you're on is pretty limited. I'm an old guy. Leave me alone.
1: I'm getting paid to be on these. (laughs) have a little bit of incentive. Yeah.
0: Fair. So Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, For those of you listening to definitely connect with Evan in all the places that he's at, he's there. Obviously, you can find us on all your major podcast platforms. We are on TikTok. We are on YouTube. We are on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is our primary channel. Download, share, like, subscribe, do all of the things that all of the kids are doing these days. (laughs) We appreciate your support, and thank you for joining us. Just so I could be a a last-second troll, smash that like button. (laughs) Make
1: the comment below what your thoughts are, and subscribe, and hit the notification (laughs) bell. Every time a new video goes, I sound like Jeffree Star. That's not a good thing to be compared to if you're Jeffree Star.
0: (laughs) So thanks again for joining us on Cascading Leadership, and great conversation. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.